welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. How many here this morning have ever felt disappointed in life? <laughs> Every hand in the room should be raised. Because disappoint, where there are human creatures, disappointment is not far off. It's a normal emotional experience in the course of life for us to experience moments of disappointment. Some folks walk around in a constant state of being disappointed. It's not far from us as humans to be disappointed. There's an article called The Dopamine Roller Coaster that was published in November 9th in 2016 in New York Magazine. It was published on the science of disappointment. And the article opened by stating the obvious, which is that the feeling of being let down is actually one of life's toughest emotional experiences. Out of anything that you can go through, the uh, scientific foundation who did this study on disappointment found that the experience of being disappointed or feeling left out or rejected is one of the toughest emotional experiences of the, of the um, spectrum of human emotions for us as people to go through. Isn't that the truth? Do you find that working in your own life? There are other stu- there's other stuff that's difficult to journey as people. But when it comes to being disappointed, when it comes to feeling disappointment, that's a rough one, isn't it? Just to level with you, that's a rough one. We all have these expectations that we put on life where um, hope is kind of a double-edged sword in that sense, isn't it? But we don't need a magazine article to know that this is true, that disappointment hurts. We don't need a, a series of facts to tell us that. Whether it's um, a spouse or a, part, uh, a partner who's cheated on you and then hit it, a colleague who's smeared you in a meeting to steal the promotion that you earned, a child that you've prayed for ever since birth, storming out of the house, swearing never to return, a forgotten birthday, a withheld apology, a bucket of lies from someone you'd die for. Whatever it is, we all know the, the sting and the hurt of how disappointment feels to our souls. It's an unavoidable part of the human experience. And the New York Magazine, the New Yorker Magazine, what it articulated is that this experience is not just emotional, but it's physiological as well. There are these things in your brain called dopamine receptors that are like pleasure centers in your mind. That when you... Uh, experience a positive life experience, these receptors will release this hormone, dopamine, to give you a sense of satisfaction in your life. The dopamine systems in your brain don't just react to what you experience, they attempt to predict what you need or want. Here's how it works. The brain generates expectations about the future, Often these expectations are based on what you want. Something you perceive as good has happened in the past, so you begin to expect it will happen again in the future. 
Before it ever happens, your dopamine levels begin to rise in the rush of anticipation. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Then, when the good thing actually occurs, you get a double shot of dopamine. Here's the rub, though. Life doesn't always give us what we expect. People fail us. People hurt us. People lay us on the altars of their own selfishness. When you don't get the desired result, researchers call this a reward prediction error. Not only do your dopamine levels fall, they plummet from the heightened level generated by your expectations. So it leaves you feeling lower than what you felt before. That's the physiological working of disappointment on our bodies and our brains. We're going to read a story today that deals with exactly that. And it might not look like it on the surface, but it's exactly what Jesus is getting at. So turn with me to Mark. You can find the story in, uh, in Matthew as well. And all of the gospel writers have different takes on how this scenario played out. But we're going to read from Mark today. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have one on either side of the stage. You're welcome to take it. It's our gift to you. The context for this passage is that um, Jesus is in town in Jerusalem as a pilgrim for the Passover feast. Jerusalem normally would be a city in those days of around 15 to 30,000 people. During the high holidays, especially Passover, pilgrims from all over the world or the Mediterranean world Palestinian world would come to the city and the city population levels would swell for a couple of weeks to around 250,000, 300,000 people in this flurry of activity. It's like Augusta, Georgia. The Masters tournament is going on right now. Sarah and I lived in Augusta for nearly five years. As you know, the Masters tournament is this, the, the pinnacle of the golf experience in the tournaments. And during the two weeks in the Masters, everyone, well, everyone who lives in Augusta pretty much takes off and they leave the city. But everybody from the outside world comes into Augusta to see the golf tournament. In fact, if you have a house in Augusta that's within about five to ten minutes driving range, and it from driving range, no pun intended, that's um, close to the golf course, and it's a pretty nice house, you can fetch up to ten, twelve thousand dollars in renting your house out for the week. There's so many people, and there's so much money flowing through the town that Augusta nearly does eighty percent of its eighty percent of its annual income in those two weeks alone. So the scene is similar in Jerusalem during Passover. People are flooding up to Jerusalem, up to Zion. This is a city that means so much to so many people. In this time, this is all context, in this time, Jerusalem and the Jewish people are being, um, are being ruled by Rome. 
and the governor of Jerusalem for the imperialist force of Rome is a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. You're familiar with him. You've heard the name Pontius Pilate. And so during this time, as in Augusta, when the city's population swells like this, you need crowd control. And so every year during Passover, when pilgrims are coming from all over, this is an opportunity for Rome, the dominating force in the city of Jerusalem, to show strength and to show power and what their kingdom looks like. And so in rides Pontius Pilate because the city needs crowd control. In fact, there's a very well-documented source outside of the Bible who says that, there, that Jesus' entry to the city that day was not the only entry, triumphal entry, happening that day. That Pontius Pilate rode in on the exact same day on the west side of the city. And I often wonder, with having younger kids, maybe parents you can relate with me, I often wonder which procession I'm at. Because I know my kids, and even though this is a foreign government that's, in, that's lording will and exerting power over me, those soldiers who are riding in with Pontius Pilate have shiny helmets and big swords and massive horses. Which procession am I at? My kids are like, I want to go to that one. I don't know if they want to see some peasant king strolling in on a donkey. On the foal of a donkey. Not even the big one. The little one. Almost comical. It really is. If you think about this, this scene that we're about to read, it's almost laughable. It's almost laughable. Here you have the Roman government and their horses and legionnaires all dressed up in military regalia, riding into the city, triumphant captors, oppressors. And on the east side of the city, you have Jesus with his faithful band of fishermen followers (laughs) riding in on his noble steed, the foal of a donkey. Which procession are you at? Okay, let's read it. Here's how it plays out. Oh, also, Jesus has just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Keep that in mind. Lazarus is alive. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Why are you stealing our donkey, dudes? Tell them, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, uh, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Life doesn't always give us what we expect. God had saved his people from an occupier once before when an uncommon man trotted into town. With a new sheriff seemingly on the horizon, all of the people here, their dopamine centers are kicking in, in anticipation. Something good is going to happen. This isn't the first time that they've done this before. There's a guy named Judas of Maccabees who strode into the city some 200 years earlier. And the same thing happened. Cloaks were spread before him. Palm branches were being waved like our kids did this morning. And so other... Oh, I quite like that. It's a good teaching baton there. So people are really excited. People who are in the know. People who may have witnessed uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Their dopamine centers are kicking in at this point. Something good is going to happen. Something good is going to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. They're singing songs. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a song that's not new for them to be singing. This is a song that's taken from a psalm. In Psalm 118, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It tells of an enemy swarming like bees, driving the psalmist to the brink of destruction. Then God sweeps in with a mighty hand and wipes out the enemy. The word Hosanna that we sang this morning, the word Hosanna that these people are singing as Jesus rides into town on his donkey, means, Lord, Save us now. Save us now. They're asking Jesus to drive out the enemy army and restore order where they experience chaos as an oppressed people. They think Jesus is here to finally fulfill the prophecy that would drive out the Roman government. Even the donkey plays a role in elevating expectations for people especially the, the disciples. There's the oral tradition of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the Jewish law. There is an oral tradition of the Torah called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, we're told that when a king rides, a, a triumphant king, when the king rides into town to free his people Israel, that he will ride on an animal that has never been ridden before. And so Mark is detailed, and so is Matthew, to tell us that when Jesus talks with his disciples and says, 
hey, go grab me a donkey that's never been ridden before, his disciples, something would have kicked in their heads. And they would have thought, oh, here it comes. Jesus is here to save Israel. Otherwise, he wouldn't be riding in on a donkey. He wouldn't care. But he's riding in on a donkey that's never been ridden before. Of course, this is reminiscent of Zechariah 9, a prophetic passage that many of these Jerusalemites would have heard before. In the passage in Zechariah says, See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. That night around dinner tables across Jerusalem, the Jews likely discussed the day in hushed voices. Could this be the king we've been waiting for? Can you hear dinner tables? He was riding a donkey after all. By the time Jesus mounted that donkey and descended into town, their dopamine systems would have been in overdrive. They're expecting huge things. Have you ever expected huge things in your life? I'm the same way. The crowds aren't much different from us today. I've spent my whole life in different churches. Sarah and I were part of the largest vineyard church in the movement in Columbus. We've been in mega churches. We've been in medium churches. We've been in small churches, evangelical churches. We've gone to some Catholic masses. We've been to Pentecostal services. We've been all over liturgical congregations and those that are crazy loud when you walk into the room and it's like ear-splitting rock and roll, people trying to be Coldplay. I can't think of one that hasn't projected, one of those that hasn't projected expectations onto God. Maybe you picture God as a heavenly bellhop whose job it is to satisfy your deepest desires. Or perhaps God is like a holy matchmaker who will secure you a spouse. Maybe God is a cosmic bodyguard who protects you from harm. Or the world's best nanny, making sure your children turn out right. Or a divine doctor, healing your every physical condition. Or a wonder-working accountant, Solving all of your financial problems, provided you drop off a portion in the church coffers, of course. Isn't that funny hearing a pastor say that? People tend to assume that God is the deity they want. All you have to do is snatch up a couple of verses that seem to support your preferred version. Then you spend a few years listening to a pastor reinforce them through selective storytelling, and before you know it, the cement of those assumptions dries, and you begin expecting God to work in your particular way, in particular ways in your life, not unlike the people of Jerusalem. We all have ways, we all have projections, expectations that we place on God according to who we think that He is. But the truth is, we have no earthly idea who God is. We have no earthly idea who we are. 
and we think we know so well who the mystery of the universe is. And we think we know so well who we are and what we need and what we want and what's best for us. We don't know what's best for us. And here are the Jews sitting around the tables just like us in 21st century America. Here it comes. He's going to release us from the, oppressor, from the oppressors in Rome. He's going to do it. Jesus wants to give me a six-figure salary. Oh, you'd love that for me, wouldn't you, Jesus? That's what's best for me. We have no earthly idea what we need or what we want, myself included. Mm. This way of thinking, projecting expectations onto who we think God is, is not only based in pride, but it works out pretty well. So long as God seems to do what you want him to do. But the moment that God doesn't conform to our expectations, our world rattles. How many have found this? A baby is born with a disability. A son or daughter tragically passes away before their time. A person you love abandons you for another. A friend passes away. The expectations that you placed on God ferment in distrust into disappointment. And as author Anne Lamott says, this is so good, you guys, listen to this. Expectations are resentments under construction. Expectations are resentments under construction. So what do we do? Are we not to expect anything of God? In other places in scripture, we're we're told to believe about God that he's able and willing to do far above anything we could ever ask of or dream of. So where does that leave us? In September of 2015, Seth Stevens wrote an article in the New York Times Sunday Review. He titled it, Googling for God. He wanted to show how Google search data can tell us a lot about the psychology of the modern age. And do you know who the pastor of American society is right now? Who is pastoring America right now? Its name is Google. What Seth Stevens found is that people will not share their deepest questions about God with even a trusted friend, a faith leader, parent, or anyone. But they will, however, ask this question of Google. Google is pastoring America right now. Questions. Questions that are deep inside all of us. People type them into Google where they can ask with both impunity and anonymity. Stephen sifted through a decade worth of Google searches and found the most Googled questions about God. You want to know what they are? 
Why does God allow suffering? Maybe some of these are familiar. Why does God need so much praise? Why does God hate me? Why did God make me ugly? Why did God make me gay? Why did God make me black? A blind man could see the thread binding each of these questions together. Disappointment with God. Many of us, perhaps tens of millions, have, co- have a common experience when it comes to spirituality. We expect God to be something and then discover that he's not like that at all. Or we expect God to do something only to realize that it seems he has his own priorities. In these moments, a tsunami of disappointment comes crushing down on us. So how do we move from disappointment to disillusionment? And you might say, well, how is disillusionment any better than disappointment? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because on the surface, disillusionment doesn't seem any fun at all. And in a lot of cases, it's not fun to feel disillusioned. But I think the word disillusionment has gotten a bad rap in recent years. Don't you think so? If we look at the word and what it's actually meaning, disillusionment. It's the stripping away, it's the taking of this lie that we practice in our everyday lives or in our heads that we think this idea and ideas are powerful. They shape our lives. And it's having this lie be stripped away by the Spirit. This is why I like to say that disillusionment is a backdoor to Jesus' presence. Disillusionment is a gift. To be disillusioned from your previous way of thinking signifies growth and space and divine design to step into who I've, met, I've always been meant to be. Because if we have any sort of inauthentic, inauthenticity or living under some sort of lie, whatever it may be, it makes us unable to step into who, it makes us feel like our shoes are stuck in cement, paralyzes us. And so the process of disillusionment can be a gift from the Holy Spirit, a gift from God to strip away all that we thought we knew about God, all that we thought we knew about the way that the world worked, all the ways we thought that people wouldn't let us down, all of the things that we thought we knew about ourselves, is stripped away by the presence of God. And we're left just us before God. <sighs> that feels freeing. The gift of disillusionment. The gift of disillusionment. And in this passage, we have a picture of what happens to a group of very religious people when they feel disappointed by God. That's what's going on here. Because at the start, the crowds embrace Jesus with dopamine levels soaring 
and shouts of, save us now, save us. We love you, Jesus. As soon as Jesus turns out to be something other than the Savior they expect, the same people, their hosannas morph into crucify him, string him up. Where are we in that procession? When God doesn't come through for us and our dopamine levels falter and we're left lower than before, a seed of disappointment starts to germinate in our hearts. And the seed's manifestation, I'm here to tell you, is crucify him. Crucify him. God, where were you when my child died? God, where were you? My spouse cheated on me. God, where were you? Can't you see this chronic illness that I'm suffering with? Where are you? And this little seed gets dropped in our hearts. And if we're not careful to let the Spirit do the work of the gift of disillusionment, that seed will germinate into bitterness and we'll end up with crucify him. String him up. Because God, I'm disappointed in you. You didn't come through for me. Well, if we were to finish that sentence, what that sentence would really say would be, God, you didn't come through for me in the way that I thought you should come through for me. And our hosannas begin to morph and to crucify him. String him up. And we become part of the crowd that seeks to put Jesus on the cross. Each one of us. Even the best, even the best of us. <coughs> Excuse me. Still a little coffee there. Even the best of us. Even the best. And I think that's what the, the, the best of us, meaning... We're all in this boat together, yes. But the ones who walk with the limp, the leaders who walk with the limp, who follow Jesus, who I admire, who, who you admire, who you look up to, are the ones who have come to grips with this fact that in their hearts, there's this little seed that wants to crucify Jesus just as much as the people back then did. And coming face to face with that is part of the gift of disillusionment. It's part of it. Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that they wanted. He's going to serve rather than be served. He's going to die and not be killed. He enters unarmed, waging peace. This makes a larger point that God does not intend to meet our expectations. Instead, he meets our needs. This type of God makes me completely uncomfortable. Just saying. I'm not comfortable with this sort of God at all. Because I don't want vegetables when I'm craving candy. I said, I don't want vegetables when I'm craving candy. 
Can you level with me in that? I, I want a God that satisfies my desires, whether or not those align with my needs. And so it is with all of us. We welcome God into our lives with anticipation and expectation. We're laying down cloaks. We're waving palm branches with all we've got. But when God turns out to be someone we don't recognize, poof, we scatter like smoke in the wind. One of the most interesting features of this story is how much preparation Jesus does. He lines everything up. What the heck, Jesus? He's the orchestrator behind all of this. Making sure to trigger the crowd's expectations just so. Oh, Jesus is a master. Isn't he a master? Jesus is a master at living. It's like Jesus has hired this PR agency indicating that he knows exactly what he's stirring up. He knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. But why? Is he trying to disappoint people? No. But I do think he's trying to disillusion people. Disillusionment occurs when God shatters our fantasies, tears down our idols, and dismantles our cardboard cutouts. It occurs when we discover that God does not conform to our expectations, but rather exists as a mystery beyond those expectations. There's an Episcopal preacher, her name's Barbara Brown Taylor, and her book, God and Pain, may be one of the best definitions of disillusionment that I've read. She says this, she describes, Taylor describes disillusionment as the sacred experience or experiences that cut us down to size and remind us that our smallness in this in this, and remind us of our smallness in this expansive universe. These experience are, experiences are often painful, but never bad. Because they make us shed the lies we've mistaken for truth. Disillusion, she writes, we find out what is not true and we're set free to seek what is. If we dare to turn away from the God who, uh, who was supposed to be in order to seek the God who is. Isn't that brilliant? Ultimately, the triumphal entry is not about donkeys. It's not about palm branches at all. It's a reminder that placing expectations on God based on our wants is a, re uh, is a recipe for resentment. But nurturing openness to divine mystery is a framework for faith. Nurturing openness to divine mystery. God, what does that look like for you? Being open to divine mystery. Only you, in truth, in authenticity, can answer that question before God. Only I can answer that question. I'm not here to be Bible answer man for you. 
I don't know what it looks like for you in your situation. It's impossible. It's easier for Google to know than for me to know what that looks like for you to remain open to the divine mystery in your life. What what would it look like for you to surrender the places of disappointment that you feel because we all feel them? The places of disappointment before God and surrender those to him. Receive the, and to receive the gift of disillusionment and say, Lord, and just say before him, Lord, strip away everything. Be careful when you say this. Lord, strip away everything that is a lie. Everything that is inauthentic before you, the ways that I act before my friends, the ways that I am at work. And in its simplest form, basically asking before God with with a humble heart, with as much authenticity as you can, without any without putting without mixing any shame in the business, right? And saying, God. Asking God, God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Where have I let places of disappointment creep into my relationship with you? And then listening to what Jesus has to say to you. And then listening, just being open before him. We're going to close. But really what I wanted to say this morning is that what we experience as disappointment is really an invitation to give up holding tight to what we hope is true. To stop trying to cast God in our own image. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus doesn't agree with everything that you think about who, who he is? Jesus doesn't agree with me all the time. Jesus doesn't agree with you lots of times. No, Eben, that's not the thing we say to our spouse. <laughs> In the most gentle way. Jesus disagrees with you quite, quite a lot. Because Jesus is his own person. And Jesus has his own thoughts and his own feelings about how you live. And Jesus is not the summation of everything that you think that he is. And that's the wonderful thing about Jesus as our God. Because that's not the way that many or all of the world's religions see their God. Do good before the God, get rewarded before the God, or don't get punished. In the economy of grace, you could be the best person. You could be the most religious person. You could go to church every Sunday. You could give tons and tons of money. You could care for the poor. You could do everything right. And in the economy of grace, still not feel like anything's getting any better in your heart. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And he has his own agenda for your life. And it's different from yours. And your expectations that you place on him only seed disappointment and bitterness and resentment in the end 
and just letting God be God and being open to the divine mystery and saying, these places of disappointment, I feel them. I feel hurt. Jesus, I feel like you don't hear me. I feel like the door of heaven is shut, bolted twice on the inside. But God, I don't want to put you on that cross again. Help, help. Then you can say Hosanna in an authentic way. Then Then you can say, once you've come face to face with these disappointments in your life, and you move past this whole thing of like disappointments. I don't have any. What are you talking about? I don't have any disappointments with God. There's prayer for you today. If you say that, there is prayer for you today because we all have places. (coughs) So let's stop trying to cast God in our own image. Let's let God be who God is, not who we wish God would be. And that's a choice that belongs to us. And who knows? Maybe if we decide to step off of the dopamine roller coaster, maybe we'll find ourselves at the foot of a cross, giving up all we have for the one who gave up everything for us. Would you join me in standing?